The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, my guest is Stephanie Ann Johnson. Stephanie is a second-generation theater practitioner. She's been a lighting designer working locally, nationally, and internationally for over 40 years. She's also a visual artist who has had two one-person shows in San Francisco. Dr. Johnson is a founding faculty member at California State University Monterey Bay in the Visual and Public Art Department. As an educator, she's taught courses in art history, studio art, and service learning. She holds degrees in theater, BFA from Emerson College in Boston, interdisciplinary studies with an MA from San Francisco State University, art with an MFA from University of California, Berkeley, and a PhD in interdisciplinary studies with an emphasis in public policy from Union Institute and University in Cincinnati. Her play, Every 21 Days, Cancer, Yoga, and Me, has been performed in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Berkeley. And I, and I know she has uh, something coming up in Atlanta as well. Her new play, Mrs. Rife and the Counterfeit Shop, will be for, performed at the Jewish Community Center in Berkeley in January. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, Cheryl. How are you? I'm well. And you? You all ready for this? All all theater. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, you you pretty much exemplify the heart of this program of good grief because you faced uh, the loss of your health with being diagnosed with cancer and then really um, had an experience where you did something very different as a result. Um, Can you can you share how the play came about, which which we're mostly here to talk about? Sure. Um, first of all, thank you so much for generously having me on your show, and I hope that people will find some comfort or inspiration or a few laughs with this interview. Maybe all, was, of the, uh, all the above. Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> um, so I was um, experiencing some tickling in my body, and uh, they didn't know what it was, and finally in December uh, I was do- diagnosed with early-stage um, well, they didn't know what it was at first. They thought it was an inflamed ovary. And that was so what year, the, Stephanie? Pardon? December of what? December of what year was that? Uh, 2012. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, I was diagnosed with that in December, and I was to go back in February and have one ovary removed. Uh, the, the surgeon said he was 80% certain 
that it was not cancerous. So, you know, I had to uh, live with uncertainty for two and a half months until February. Mm. Um, and then uh, when they went in to remove one ovary, they found in the wash some cancerous material. And so they performed uh, a full hysterectomy, and which was a surprise for all of us. Um, I yeah, because because no eighty chance. eighty twenty are not bad odds, so They're it not, must have no, been it, somewhat it, shocking. Well, I think he was shocked. I mean, they had scheduled the next person to come after me uh, much sooner because they were going to remove one one ovary laparoscopically, and I was going to be out of there. So they were all uh, quite surprised. I was surprised. Uh, it was very frightening. Mm-hmm. It was um, stage one because it had not embedded itself in any organs. And that um, would be pretty so, pretty unusual for ovarian uh, an ovarian cancer diagnosis, correct? That's correct. Uh, from what I have learned thereafter, it's very, very unusual. Um, ovarian cancer is very quiet. Uh, they call it the silent killer, uh, you know, uh, because of that. Because oftentimes... By the time it's diagnosed, it's very late and very hard to get, you know, get in front of or cure. So this was very, this was very unusual. I've been very thankful ever since then. Then they recommended three or six chemo treatments, and I had had a, um, my best friend and my mother died uh, two years before that in 2010. Mm. Um, my mother did not die of cancer. My best friend did die of cancer. And my 94-year-old cousin died of cancer. So I knew what chemo uh, was because I had gone through all of that with my, with my best friend, Vivian Louise. And so I knew what chemo was as an outsider. Um, but nonetheless, still, when, you, when you're told that the hysterectomy is the beginning of the journey, not the yes. end, you know, that that's going to go on every three weeks, uh, that puts a different light on it. Absolutely. And um, also, uh, you know, there's such a range of responses to chemo. And so um, you don't really know what you're headed for, just that it's going to be hard, basically. That's correct. You don't know. And there, there are all the side effects. And they have you go to a chemo class. And, you know, they tell you what the possible side effects are. And but you know, I've been in, you know, a number of support groups, and, you know, your ears have already gone dead. When they, when you heard the word cancer, already your ears have gone dead to hearing the rest of the material at that moment. For sure. But she did talk about the side effects and, you know, various things to not do and to do, and, you know, but you're, you're dumb and in shock. And so, so can, you, can, can you... Um, Talk a little bit about how you got from there to writing things down about it. Did okay. that? Did you feel a, a, an urge to write about it right away, or was that later? How did that come about? Well, since I've been working in theater, you know, for a long time, my mother worked uh, with the American Negro Theater in the fifties in New York. And all of my life she had told me about how wonderful theater was and theater people. And I went to 
undergraduate school in theater, and I've been a lighting designer for uh, over four decades now. So um, as I wrote in my program notes, theater is my first language. Mm. So, you know, I'm not a person that does journals necessarily or any fictional writing. I've done research writing, of course, with my academic background, but I wrote this play in real time in a language that I understand, which is the language of the stage. Um, and so I started writing it, and I wrote it in real time. I wrote it as I was going through chemo um, and all of the effects of that. And so most of the play is very accurate in terms of the language because I was writing it into my play. Sure, so, so it was kind of very authentic because it was as it was happening. It was exactly the words that were with you at the time. Yeah, and I yeah. think... Um, I, I, I remember one evening getting a message from the ancestors that came into my head, and they said, write your way out. Hmm. Hmm. And so, you know, my form of writing, I mean, obviously it was not going to be a research project, um, but write your way out. And so I went to, I went to a theatrical forum. One thing that's very interesting to me, Stephanie, is that um, although you, as you said have been involved with theater forever, um, this was sort of a new thing to write a play. Absolutely. And you had had other art forms available. You're an artist, you know. Um, True. So so it it definitely has impact on me that this this kind of um, fresh form for you... Obviously, yes. lots of exposure, but you'd never done it before, and that was the one that really um, you were called to. It was. I mean, and, uh, you know, I've always been trying to sneak theater into um, my life, you know, aside from lighting design. I've always been sneaking it in. I remember that when I was going through the doctoral program, uh, there were three and four of us that would do presentations, and two of us were involved in theater. So we actually turned some of these research presentations into performances where we involved people in rituals and pouring water and praying and, you know. So I've always snuck uh, the theater form into whatever venue I could. So this was a, more of a formal uh, way of doing it. And, so then, just, yeah. and then became a, uh, a way of, you know, it's a one-woman show. It's all you on the stage. Just so the listeners know, I've seen the play twice, um, and and very uh, very much appreciate not just the message but everything that's in it. Uh, you're, I agree with you completely. It has a very p- present quality. Um, yeah, it, it does. You, do you know, Cheryl? I I wrote writing this play in uh, third person, and I have a friend, Vicky Delajoyo. Um, we've been friends for many, many years. She's a theater person and a, a Qigong master and all those things. So I went to Vicky's mother's house, and I was talking to her about the play, and uh, Mrs. Delachoyo said, oh, no, 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 you're going to perform this play. Now, I don't think you're going or- to argue with anybody's elderly mother who's from New York. <laughs> she told me that I was going to perform it. That was the final, you know, that was the final answer. And so but were you were you, were you scared? To, were you scared to do that, uh, or well, or excited, or a combination? What what was your 
So immediately you got on board with what she was saying, apparently. No, well, no, you, you, yeah, you don't say no. You don't say no to Mrs. Mrs. <laughs> you know. it's just, it's, it, it, she's a New Yorker. You just you don't say no. I said yes, well, ma'am. And, so and, and you, I mean. <laughs> and went back to work and changed it because I had written it in the name of somebody that I remembered from high school, a woman named Cheryl Pennington. And when we were in high school, she got... Um, I don't remember what kind of cancer it was, but her she had an amputation and all kinds of things, and she kept she kept coming back to school. And so I wrote it in her honor, and I used her name. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, then I had to change immediately. And, you know, my own mother was gone, so I guess I had somebody else's mother to tell me what to do. And it was Vicky's, and uh, I'm glad she did, because she was absolutely right. And, uh, I mean, I, I think that is part of the power of it, that it's, it's your experience, your voice, and your theater experience all wrapped up together. Yes. And it, it's very powerful that way. But I also think quite vulnerable. I, I would think yeah. it might feel very vulnerable, in fact, to get up on stage and expose an experience in your life that had so many aspects to it, including, of course, the physical aspects, and yeah. also including all the things that went on in your head and, uh, you yeah. know, all the changes that happened in you, quite a vulnerable thing to expose. Yeah, it, it, I was frightened because for so many years, with, with very few exceptions, I mean, when I lived in Holland, I performed a bit, when I was going to UC Berkeley and I directed a play, I put myself in the, you know, in the opening of the play, talking with the playwright, you know, little cameos. So it was frightening because I've always been behind the stage. People are very happy to have you do their lighting. Most people don't understand it. But in the end, when they do understand, uh, understand the lighting and, and your contribution, they're very happy. Um, but this is a very different position. You're putting yourself on the stage, center stage, you're the only one there. Um, with my crazy self, I put in a bunch of voiceovers and images to be projected, and so my biggest uh, uh, fear was forgetting the lines because I'm not accustomed to that. But then I realized nobody knows the story but me. I have a, a technician that I work with, and he does the sound and the visuals, and he knows if I skip something, I'll come back to it later on. Uh-huh. Um, it was it was exciting and exhilarating, and the first time I performed it, I performed it at, at the Niroga Yoga Studio, which was then in Berkeley, and because I have so many theater friends, I called a handful of friends and, and my yoga teacher, and we did it as a staged reading, and that was perfect to get it off the ground. Maybe that's a good opening for you to read that little section about yoga. Okay, because it must been it must have been fascinating how it was for them to, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> read that section. I would think it was all right. So here's how the play starts: <clears throat> Yoga, yoga. What's up with this frenzy? I'm not talking about yoga as an ancient practice that originated in India. Nope, not that one. I'm talking about white yoga. The appropriation of the thousands-year-old practice, the outfits, the props, the expense, and the literature, yoga journal, yoga plus, 
vegan yoga, yoga for singles, yoga for couples, family yoga, manly yoga, yoga without yoga. What? <laughs> I swear you can't swing a live, dead, or suspended yogi or yogini in Berkeley, California, without him or her ending up in one of the hundreds of yoga places here. For years and years, I've watched happy, happy white people walking the streets of the Bay Area wearing all cotton, scent-free, organic, kind to nature, recyclable, compostable, inflammable, Lululemon outfits on their way to their yoga classes. Each one carrying in their all-cotton organic bags a mat, blocks, a wedge, a strap, blankets, a reusable stainless steel, never plastic, non-toxic, GMO-free, fair trade water bottle. And there goes $500 walking down the street to the softly lit, scent-free whisper zone of the yoga studio. There ain't no frowns up in there. Everybody is happy, happy, grateful, and namaste-ish. It gives me a headache just to see them. <laughs> Plus, who can go to classes in the daytime? Don't these people work? Like I said, what's up with this? So that's the opening of the play, and I'm throwing magazines around that I've invented, you know, vegan yoga and uh, uh -huh. yoga without yoga, and I'm throwing magazines out into the audience uh, while I'm ranting about white yoga. You know, and in full disclosure, I'm an African-American uh, woman, so, you know, I'm ranting about white people. Yeah. Well, the reason I, I uh, love that part of the play is that, to me, it stands in for the way in which, you know, uh, I suppose there might be people who go through cancer and, and don't examine every corner of their life. Uh, you know, and and what they think about things, and and whether they're doing what they want to be doing, and all that. But given that I work with support groups and and um, you know people that are doing that, I don't know any people who don't kind of. And I and I know that yoga ended up being an extremely important because uh, I've seen the play an extremely important part of your own. Um, responding to cancer. Yes. So absolutely. absolutely. And you know, as you know, I use it as a uh, comedic foil to get people into the play. Um, and then we go into the deeper levels of, of, of what it meant to have gone through that surgery, the people that I've lost, you know, and losing my mother. So, you know, in the beginning, people are laughing and laughing and laughing. And I've only heard feedback from two people of all the performances I've done, you know, that they don't like that section and why am I talking about white people? And, and, and to those two people, I say, you stopped listening. You stopped listening because mm -hmm. as the play in, unfolds, you see how I start to talk about yoga in a different way, yoga in America in a different way. I still have a critique about it, um, but it, 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 it ends up differently at the end. And so if you stop listening with that because you think that, um, you know, I'm just there to talk badly about white people, then you, you miss the transformation that happens between the beginning and the end. Well, the other thing I thought you were definitely talking about was the way in which we all relate to judgments 
our unexamined judgments, right? And how we all come to our experiences with, you know, some some uh, down pat beliefs. And so for me, uh, I was very impacted by the way in which you examined those as a result of your experience. So it's time for our first break, Stephanie. Unbelievably, we're, we're ready to, to break for a, a couple of minutes. So listeners, you can find links to my website and social media, every, every sort, at uh, the Good Grief page at Voice America. And you can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, etc. Sign up for my email list. And to find Stephanie Ann Johnson, you can go to lightessencedesign.com or the Facebook page, Light Essence Design. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Stephanie Ann Johnson about her play, 21 Days, Cancer, Yoga, and Me. And during the break, Stephanie, we were talking about how um, 
when you're when you, when something happens like a cancer diagnosis um there's this idea that many people have that then everything's going to be all about cancer but actually everything else continues and cancer adds gets added in uh, yes. uh so the way in which um you know this idea that humor can, is a part of it a huge part mm-hmm. in my experience uh you mm-hmm. know having having lived next to cancer for almost 9 years humor yeah. was life's blood by the end of that time you know just yeah. couldn't have couldn't have done without it and um and examining other parts of your life and how you want it to be and maybe coming up with some new creative um pro, you know impulses and etc that really does apply to you doesn't it oh absolutely um absolutely you know i mean i i found a well of strength and uh an array of resources that I never knew existed, you know, like the Women's Cancer Resource Center. You know, I've been there for groups, and I've been in groups that you facilitated, and um, I go there for yoga, actually. And, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have known this whole world existed. Well, and also, um, th- there's a sense in which, you know, yes, always part of theater, but this whole part of your life where you're a playwright and uh, you perform your plays and, uh, you know, do them, do it as benefits. And um, so there, therefore it becomes your service. And, you know, um, could you have predicted, could you have predicted that? I think probably not. Could you? No, not at all. No, not at all. But, you know, when the door opened, you know, and I saw some sunlight beyond, I walked through it, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it's been, I think it's been a benefit, you know, there's always at the end of my performance, people that are coming up and crying and thank you so much, and they remember their aunts or their uncles or their mother or whoever it is, and because people don't talk about cancer unless they're in the middle of it, you know, once yes. it's happened, and that's my experience, is once it's happened to you or to somebody else, then people don't talk about it because even calling upon the specter of it is, is frightening. And also, when you're going through cancer, people don't know what to do. You know, they just don't know what to do to help you or what to say or, you know, um, I have a whole part of my play that I call the Gleefully Doomed, which is where people, you know, ask you all kinds of questions about if your nails are going to fall off and if you got if you felt nauseous or, you know, and, and most of the people that ask those kinds of questions um, we're not cancer cancer survivors, uh, but people don't know what to say. They really don't, because it's such a monstrous thing. Well, that leads me to something I really wanted to ask you about, which is obviously writing uh, uh, was part of your response. But I wondered what other things actually helped you navigate that time in your life because um, I know you to be a very um, optimistic, positive sort of person. Um, I mean, I'm sure you brought that, but but it's also uh, in a way a um, an assault on that when something this big happens. Um, so, so what helped you to maintain that for yourself and... Um, Maybe what developed of support to you that you wouldn't have expected? Well, 
I think I felt, you know, initially, as we've talked about in the groups a lot, I was in shock. You know, I was almost guaranteed that it was not going to be this. Um, and I am an optimistic person. And I think that I was able to stay emotionally buoyant because it was stage one. I mean, those numbers mean a lot. Mm. Here's stage, stage four. It's very, it, I think, it's more frightening than if you hear stage one. You know, so in the world of cancers, you know, I came out in a, in a relatively good position, given the type of cancer that was diagnosed. And so, so you had, you could, you could find a way to say, I'm grateful or I'm fortunate? Is, is that totally. kind and of... So, and also because I had health insurance, um, I'm a professor, and so I have um, time off without having to be in a financial pinch. You know, I took the rest of the semester off. I mm. thought I would be out for three weeks or two weeks at the most. And then um, I ended up having to go to chemo once every three weeks. And so I took the semester off. And I had many, many, many hours of sick leave because I generally don't get sick. So I felt very privileged, very fortunate to have health care, to have an early diagnosis, and to have a job in which uh, I was not going to be punished for something that, had, that wasn't my fault. I think I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because um, it is an area uh, where economics have a huge, 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 huge impact for sure. Totally. And things like the healthcare system. Uh, in fact, I just heard from somebody yesterday that I've worked with. She's gone to Stanford for two years to deal with her cancer and her health plan um got in touch with her to say that she couldn't use Stanford anymore. And now she has to switch to UCSF. I'm not sure people understand how significant that is because it's really hard to get practitioners that you, that you trust, that you feel good with. And then, you know, because of some kind of insurance change, uh, you have to start over basically. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unjust, it's unfair, it's immoral, you know, that people's lives depend upon this, and those kinds of changes can happen. You know, I, I have Kaiser insurance, and people have complained about it, and I think Kaiser is doing an excellent job given the system, the health care, and didn't you call it body repair? Yes, body repair. Not care, body repair. (laughs) Yes. Body repair system that we have. And so I, again, felt very fortunate. I had doctors that listened, that explained things to me. I had friends who were doctors that I brought with me to the, to the, um, you know, appointments to explain things. You know, I had, I had everything I needed to get to the other side of it. And many people don't have those things. And I, I think they should be provided. For everybody, and and uh, visible enough uh, that people do in fact find them, because right. uh, you know I know that um, developing a, a network where people, for instance, will find out about the center that you're talking about, that that when they're diagnosed, they'll know there's that place to go, 
has been a long process. It's not easy to get health health systems um, coordinating with with community organizations sometimes. That's right. And we've come a long way in that way, don't you think? I do. I mean, the comparison between now and, you know, 20 or 30 years ago is profoundly different. Profoundly different. Yeah. 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 And, the and then there's, there's, still, there's still a lot of room for improvement on that. Totally. So um, I'm thinking right now, just because we're talking about... Uh, the healthcare system. I wonder if you have handy that part of of your um, of your play about uh, going into surgery. I do. Maybe you could so share that. Ready? Yeah. Okay. It's freezing cold in the operating room. I detest the fluorescent lighting. I join in the conversation. Yes, you are. You're an all-woman team until the other surgeon gets here. That's really unique. I look over. Wow. It's a black woman surgeon. This is a lucky sign. After all, how many black women oncological surgeons are there in the world? I can't believe it. I say to her, Hi, I just got my PhD in public policy. She talks a bit about black professionals. I say, yes, I agree. We really need more African Americans in both academia and medicine. I look around at the team. Excuse me, excuse me. I want everyone to look at my chart very, very carefully. There can be no oopsies here. I am not here for racial or gender reassignment. I came in here a black woman, and I better wake up being a black woman. Suddenly, (laughs) as if motivated by my ethnic self-definition, the world around me goes black. (laughs) You know, obviously that's deep and and funny and um, also says a lot about how you, in this case, but I think people in general, um, try to cope in a way that maintains your personhood. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, I, as I understand it, you didn't plan to say that. It it just no. came came out of you. Yeah. And then it gave you a way to incorporate the experience that was very personal that was very right. you, that, that made you a person to all those people in the operating room. That's um, right. and, it channeled, and it channeled the fear I was feeling, you know, I mean, and they all, they all left. They cracked up. I don't know what they said to one another because the, the, then the uh, anesthesia took effect and I fell out. But they were laughing and laughing. I, I think that brings something more general up that um, we do... Um, you know, I've watched many people sort of, uh, there's, there's the way in which the system depersonalizes us. And then because of that system, sometimes we do that to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what you didn't do. You okay. know, you, you could have just sort of disappeared into the cold, dark, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, or the, actually the cold, bright, 
fluorescent yeah. uh, experience. Um, mm-hmm. But instead, you kind of forcefully claimed your presence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that has you know, something to say about coping, and, yes? And, and that in that moment, it was so funny, it was spontaneous. But it is totally East Coast humor. Totally. Uh, I mean, in that moment, I was, you know, my East Coast self. And I, I put them on notice. Don't mess this up. You know, I said it in a more California way. But right. the message underneath was, don't you mess up. Well, that's what you were talking about with your friend's mother, too, right? If, if, yeah, the, if, the, New York, if the New York comes out, people have to comply with that, huh? <laughs> they do, unless if they're, if they're also New Yorkers, then, we get, then you get in a fight and somebody wins and that's the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a hierarchy, maybe? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, somebody, somebody's mother that's in their 80s, or might have been 90 then, somebody's mother, no, they're at the top. And that's the end of it. You know, they're the alpha, and that's the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think, um, you know, one uh, one thing that happens for people is they um, they let go of sometimes let go of what other people are going to think about something a little more and become more. Maybe wholehearted is a way to put it, or adamant in them in who they are. Uh, did that happen for you, or did you just kind of um, bring in what you already had going and use it to good effect? Um, I think it went the opposite way because you know I've always been uh, a person. You know, I know who I am. I I, I think I know where I want to go. You know, I've always been pretty straightforward and strident about those things. So I think it allowed me to take some more steps back. Because mm. having been through all of that and having lost my mother, you know, three years before that, I felt as though my heart was already broken. Mm. and lost my mother and my best friend and so on and so forth. Um, so I went the opposite way and became more tender-hearted. Because I've always so, been wholehearted about my own identity, but I think I became more tender-hearted in general, and that radiated out to other people. I mean, after the chemo and all that, I would, you know how people uh, in the Bay Area, they might have a, an extra car seat or a, or a child's toy or something. I mean, I would see toys cast away on the sidewalk, I'd be ready to cry. Mm. You know, that, that kind of uh, vulnerability. So kind of a broken open feeling and and what that resulted in for you was a softening. Whereas someone who hadn't maybe uh, been able to advocate for themselves too well previously might have a little more backbone come in. But uh, so you're saying um, there was a change in, in the direction that was maybe a little bit underplayed. Yeah. Would that be fair to say? That's Hmm. true. And I Guess also, what? you know, I'm, I'm much fiercer about um, defending other people than defending myself. You know, I'll just go after somebody I think is bullying someone else. But because I had, um, you know, my partner and a strong, strong group of friends, I had people that were fiercely advocating for me, and I was able to be in shock and confusion and not uh. worry that I would fall or be injured because I had a circle around me protecting me from that happening. So I was able to not know 
or be frightened or, you know, I always had somebody with me at all the appointments so that nothing was forgotten or missed because I was in shock and grief. That's really important, and I want to talk more about it after the break, the sense of what you were able to do because you had that container around you, as it as it were. Uh, so, yes. listeners, during the break, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com or the Good Grief host page to find Stephanie and Johnson. You can go to lightessencedesign.com or the Facebook page of the same name. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that'll help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You want to have the highest quality of life possible, and you want to live as healthy a life as possible, so you can do everything you want to do. But there are all kinds of myths with regard to what's right, what's healthy, and what is best. Debunk that misinformation by tuning into Shattering the Status Quo with Dr. Michael Quast. You should be able to make your own choices with your health and your life. And you should be well-informed to make those choices. Tune in every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Stephanie Johnson, a playwright who wrote her first play after facing, well, during cancer treatment, during chemotherapy. Um, And uh, we were talking about the ways in which you were kind of broken open and and transformed by that experience. And for you, it being um, a, a way that you could sort of surrender to being cared for, feel more tender. Um, I almost got the sense it it turned up your empathy and your yeah. and, and your outpouring. Mm-hmm. And and you were saying that you felt it, that a big factor in that was um, basically feeling that people had your back. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I know that there are people that have said that, you know, when they're going through this, people don't show up for them. And certainly there are people that disappear because they're, 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 it's a very frightening thing to be near, you know, let alone going through it. <clears throat> but I can really say with with all humility that I, I everybody showed up for me you know 
all of my closest friends on both coasts and even in Europe showed up and stayed showing up. And I'm so uh, pleased, you know, and grateful. And they're still showing up, you know, two and a half years later. And and I think that has something to say to all the people out there that are going to have a friend. You know, they've had some other loss, but they're going to have a friend who has cancer, right? Oh, we all are. Right. <laughs> you know, if we if we are uh, able to live long enough, we will have that experience. And I think you're saying just be there. You know, maybe it's scary. Yes, maybe you don't know what to say. But maybe just say you don't know what to say, <laughs> you know, and start yeah, there. Yeah. That that well, what and, what and, re, what remains with you is that everyone showed up. Everyone showed up, and also because the people that were supposed to show up showed up. I people ask me, well, didn't you lose friends? Didn't people? Just, I can't tell you who didn't show up because there were enough people that showed up that I wasn't um, having a lack. Well, that also might that that also might mean that the people that were most essential to you, uh, mm-hmm. that that really, if they hadn't showed up, it would have been uh, injurious. Yes. Probably That's that true. didn't happen. Maybe some peripheral people didn't, but that right. wasn't the essential. Uh, your essential posse, I guess. Yeah, and and I. And I don't focus on that. And also in the support groups, you know, I've said to people, and you have to forgive people that disappear and come back after. Because mm. they're, they're frightened. They're doing the best they can. And some people, it's a trigger. They remember when their mother, their best friend, whatever it was, died, and they can't deal with it again. And they'll, they'll come back or they won't come back. But, you know, we've got to have some forgiveness because, you know, nobody gets out of here alive. And for we sure, do the best we can. Well, here, for sure. Um, I want to change our gears just a little bit because I know that you are writing a second play, or I guess have written. Um, would you say have written at this point? I've written the first draft. Oh, okay, <laughs> somewhere in between those two, and um, I, you know, this whole idea of of um, gaining things. During an experience, any big experience, like having cancer, losing someone important, you know, all these major experiences, gaining things during those times, and they don't feel like gains at the time, of course, but then they carry through beyond the period where um, you're, you're most directly being clobbered by whatever that experience is. Um, so that would be an example. You've written a second play. Um, are there other things yeah. that, that kind of came more, more fully into your life at that time that you've, that you've um, kept? Yeah, I, I'd like to speak to the second play uh, first and then speak to the practices that came thereafter and that I'm keeping. Um, I was going to, before I was diagnosed with cancer, I was going to write this play, Mrs. Reese and the Counterfeit Shop. So that play, I was already writing it in my mind. Hmm. So you, there, was a little, there was a little starting place there. That's right. And so what happened was this play jumped the queue. 
um, because I was already writing the play for Mrs. Reese in my mind, and then this happened, and I, so I switched my attention to writing about what was going on in real time. But so, then the um, other, but but that was it different to go back to it, having written a play, to go back to this other play, having absolutely. had a play kind of force its way out of you in a sense. Absolutely, because you know during the time when I was writing this play, after I wrote it, and we did the stage reading at Niroga, and which was really good because we did the staged reading at Niroga, and we raised seven hundred dollars, and we asked nobody to have to pay, coming in the door, we raised $700 in just donations. Mm. So I understood the power um, that, that the theatrical form can, can generate uh, in the world of um, comfort or resources or, you know, whatever it is. So, yes, yeah, so I was going to write the play, uh, Mrs. Reese and the Counterfeit Shop, it's been in my mind for a long, long time. So when I came back to it, and I just wrote the first draft about a month ago, um, I have a friend who's a playwright. We went out to the same place to get our PhDs. And so when I sent her the Every 21 Days script, she said that I was indicating rather than acting. So she taught me, really, how to write a play, because she's a playwright. And Mm -hmm. we were, you know, we were study buddies. We made it through together. And she said, you know, you need to do this and that and don't indicate... You know, don't indicate, but act it. And then uh, Vicky Della Gioia directed the play, and we did some honing, we did some rewriting, and she really, not only was she a, a director, she was a, a dramaturg. Mm-hmm. So then I learned, you know, my seat about playwriting. And that was just, that was, that was great. It's just been great. It's taken me to another uh, venue for my love of theater. And about uh, practices and things, you know, I feel so happy that there have been takeaways. So I have a friend in Long Island, Lisa, and the minute I was diagnosed, she sent me Oprah and Deepak Chopra and Oprah's 21-day meditation series. She sent me all of those discs, and I started listening to them, and they helped me so much because, you know, it's all about meditating quieting the mind, Mm. being peaceful, being calm, even when the storm is raging around you and over you. And I have kept that up ever since. Every time they have a 21-day meditation um, online, I do it. I listen to those discs still um, pretty much every night. Mm. I've kept that. I go to yoga twice a week. I go to Niroga Yoga, and I take yoga at the Women's Cancer Resource Center. And so... I have some life-changing uh, activities that will that will stay with me. You know, meditation and yoga that help me really stay grounded. Well, and the other thing, the other thing I hear in that is um, y- you're letting yourself be important to yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's time, right? And we get all caught up, and we don't do those things that keep mm-hmm. us well. But um, you, you kind of learned the importance of that. Would that be fair to I say? I, yeah, and I, you know, I, I think that when we're younger, and even with studying martial arts, which was, you know, my main physical form of exercises, studying uh, martial arts, 
um, I still took my body for granted. You know, it was always going to be working, and certainly, you know, when I got older, it would have some challenges and limitations, but it would always be a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having been through all the chemo, and I got neuropathy in my feet, which I'm, which is going away because I'm working on it all the time, and neuropathy is kind of a, a nerve-damaged uh, situation where your feet are tingly, or, and you can have extreme neuropathy, or you can have mild, and mine is mild. And they, you know, they they announced that, you know, if you have it for longer than a couple of years, it's permanent. And I told them, no, it's not going to be permanent. And certainly I'm working on it all the time, and it is, um, it's abating. And my friend Lisa from, from Long Island, we've been friends 45 years. We went to theater school together, and we've done theater projects together. Uh, she sent me a footpath from Amazon.com, this big box arrives. I mean, that's what I You have really <laughs> practical, f- she's yeah. a very practical friend, too. <laughs> oh, she, she, she's, she's, she's just amazing. She was my first new friend when I left home um, mm-hmm. our freshman year at Emerson College. She was in acting, and I was in a, another, uh, another program. But, um, yeah, we've stayed friends ever since then. She's very practical. She's very supportive. You know, if I mention something, the next thing I know, it's at my door. Amazing. Stephanie, you know, we only have a couple of minutes left. I wonder if there's a short short piece of your play you'd like to end with. Sure. Absolutely. Here we go. I look into the mirror, and I see a different face than the one I had seen six months ago. Odd. No eyebrows. No eyelashes, no hair. Usually curled up in a smile, the corners of my eyes are now arched downward in sorrow. My eyes have a deep weariness and sadness I had never seen before, but it's oddly familiar. I see the face of my mother and this exact same look in her eyes. It's winter, it's Sunday, and she's playing her Mahalia Jackson records. Sitting alone, she would think of her family, Grandmother Virginia, Grandfather Travis, Uncle Powell, Aunt Anne, Aunt Lil, Aunt Flo, all long gone. Yes, we now share the same pained, pensive, and nostalgic look. I was walking through hell backwards during those months of surgery and chemo, but I have a better outlook on life now. I know that on any coast, Judgment is not always helpful. Yoga in America is a very useful practice, and it's not always white. I am grateful to doctors, healers, friends, and family for helping me to stay alive. Cancer is a modern-day plague. Its effects are devastating, and the doctors are doing the best they can to win this battle. I guess I've made peace with my hospital phobia. Thanks so much. It's been wonderful spending the time with you and and sharing you with the listeners. Can I make one announcement? I'm sorry? Can I make one announcement? Quickly, yes. Okay. January 30th at the Berkeley Jewish Community Center at 2 o'clock. It's a Saturday. My next play, Mrs. Reef and the Counterfeit Shop about the relationship I had with a Holocaust survivor. Um, tell everybody, and I hope we have a good house for that and, show. And send it to me on Facebook, and I'll share it on my Facebook page. 
So, listeners, uh, find Stephanie and everything she's doing at lightessencedesign.com or on her Facebook page. Next week, I'll have Deborah Allen on the show. She's a director, producer, and writer who came to my attention when she wrote a blog about how she used the TV show NCIS to help her deal with multiple losses she experienced over a short period of time. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.